listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1, 5, and 6. This can be found on page 964 of the black-covered Bible under the chair in front of you. Please stand as you are able for the Gospel reading. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The Word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been up here and in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. If you've been with us for a while, you'll recall we're working our way through Jesus's uh, Sermon on the Mount. This is his guidebook for living a life of following him. This is his manifesto for what wholehearted devotion to God looks like as we live waiting for God to bring heaven back to earth. Now, as we've been walking through this, we've been discovering that Jesus has been calling us to uh, what he refers to as greater righteousness or true righteousness, true virtue, uh, to living our lives in light of what God is like, in light of what God wants, in light of what God will do when he returns. Uh, and the point that Jesus has been making throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount so far is, is this, that, that true righteousness, that greater righteousness that he calls us to, uh, it only comes, it's only true righteousness when our internal motivation matches our external acts of righteousness, either our avoidance of sin or our positive actions of, of personal piety, prayer, fasting, things like that. In, in other words, when, when both our hearts and our hands are whole, are wholly oriented, inside and out, towards life with God, it's not enough to just look good on the outside. The motivation needs to follow it. So we've been walking our way through chapter 5 over the last couple of months through uh, six examples, sort of six representative examples that Jesus gives of, of how this wholehearted orientation towards God changes the way that we avoid the kind of activities that aren't in line with God's nature and His will and His coming kingdom. You know, we call those things sin. Well, now we're about halfway through this section of chapter 6 where Jesus is giving us three representative examples of how wholehearted orientation towards God works itself out in the activities that actively align us with God's nature, God's will, God's coming kingdom. 
We might refer to these as you know, acts of piety or religious expression or things like that. Uh, he, he chooses three representative examples, prayer, fasting, giving to the poor. Now, if chapter 5, or at least the second half of chapter 5, was about how avoiding the big sins on the outside doesn't count much if on the inside you're not wholly oriented towards God. Well, this section of chapter 6 is about how exercising public righteousness isn't worth much if your private righteousness isn't in line, isn't wholly oriented towards God. And this is a big deal because, as you'll recall, Jesus is calling us to a whole person righteousness with all of our being, not just what we do, but also who we are and what we desire. I mean, because we all know that on the one hand, it's easy to avoid, you know, the big sins like murder and adultery and the others that he lists there. It's easy to avoid those sins while secretly harboring anger and lust. On the other hand, it's much harder to avoid, this is where he's going in chapter 6, it's much harder to avoid hoping that the good things you do will be recognized and applauded. Right? It's easy to avoid the wrong things, murder, adultery, breaking your word, even without your heart being in the right place, but it's very tempting to participate in the right things, like giving to the poor and praying and fasting. It's very difficult to do those things without your heart getting sucked into the temptation to be recognized for your goodness. So, because this is You know, for all of us, this is an ever-present temptation. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, there's always this temptation to do good things in public so people can see and applaud. Because there's always this temptation to display our righteous acts in such a way that other people will see it and think well of us, Jesus is warning us here in these verses we just heard read that, hey, if you're following him, if you're following him and you're living out what holy oriented devotion to God looks like, you need to keep this in mind, God doesn't want your public displays. He wants your private devotion. Flip it around the other way. God wants, he, from us, he wants our private devotion, not our public displays. That's the, the main point of actually all of 6, 1 through 21, but particularly this section, just these couple of verses we're looking at here about prayer. God wants our private devotion, not our public displays. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to jump into Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. If you haven't already, please go ahead, turn there with me. I'm going to start in verse 5. So Jesus is giving these three examples, like I said, three representative examples of just generic sort of acts of piety that every religious person would would do, pray, fast, give to the poor. And so he's saying, you know, when you do this, now in this passage, he's not actually trying to motivate us to pray. He's assuming that we're all engaged in prayer. So he's saying, hey, when you pray, verse, verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Well, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
Now, if you've read through this section before, you may have noticed that, that this verse and the one after it, verses 5 and 6, they exactly mirror this same pattern that shows up when Jesus talks about uh, giving to the poor in verses 2, 3, and 4, and when he talks about fasting in verses 16 through 18. It's this, this exact sort of formulaic expression. This is that set of three acts of piety. And everyone, every religious person did these things, though not always for uh, the right reasons. So Jesus is focusing in on, well, what does prayer here look like if it's done from a posture of whole person righteousness, where not just the activity, but also the motivation, the drive are wholly oriented towards God? So again, verse 5, when you pray, you disciples, in contrast to anyone else, when you disciples, you followers of me, when you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites. Well, what do the hypocrites do? He lays it right out for us. the, The hypocrites love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners in order that, you know, for the express purpose of being seen by others. They don't love to pray. They love to pray where they can be seen praying. And in these two examples, you know, the synagogue and the street corner, Jesus covers the whole broad range of any kind of prayer that might happen in a public setting, right? There's the formal prayer in the synagogue. You know, when prayer happened in in the Jewish, Jewish religious services in a synagogue, it was usually led by a member of that congregation, you know, who stood up at the front and led the whole congregation in prayer. And not just uh, in that tradition, not just anyone could do it. It wasn't an open mic type of prayer. You were invited up. So to be invited to pray up front in a service started to become a, a mark of distinction. Well, that person, that person must really be righteous if they're being asked to pray, because not just anyone gets invited to, to pray up front. And pretty quickly for the person who's in that position, instead of feeling the burden of leading God's people in prayer, uh, that person can start to feel the opportunity to present themselves as someone who's know, a, a good prayer, uh, someone who can you know, speak Speak well when they're praying. It, it's an opportunity to display your education or your, your learning or your deep love for God or your ability to quote you know, large swaths of Scripture with just from memory or get your piety out there and present it for everyone through how well and how eloquently you pray. Now, that doesn't mean that all good, eloquent prayers are just public displays, but if being seen is your motivation, that's a pretty good way to get noticed for how righteous you are. So in the synagogues, on the one hand, there's this formal prayer of the formalized religious rituals, but there's also street corner prayer, he says, the the informal prayer of someone who's simply living out their daily faith. Now, normally in the Jewish world, people didn't, uh, as a matter of course, pray on street corners, you know, or the marketplaces or places like that. But if If you were the kind of person, uh, you know, the kind of Jewish follower of God who paid careful attention to the sort of pattern of prescribed prayer that happened at certain times in the day 
and you, you knew that every day at this certain time you would drop what you were doing and pray, it could become easy to conveniently organize your errands. So, oh, oops, just happened to be in public when it's time to stop and kneel and pray. Didn't mean for everyone to see me, but, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what happened. You know, a pastor friend of mine has an alarm on his watch that goes off every day at 3.16 p.m. Just to remind him to pause and pray for a moment. And, and he's not grandiose about it at all. He doesn't make a big deal about it when he's with other people. Uh, he just either prays silently or if he's, you know, hanging out with other pastors, he says, hey, guys, let's pray together. But you can see how temptation would start to creep in. There's this group of people or this person you're trying to impress or you want to think well of you and you've got to schedule a meeting with them. We'll schedule it for, I don't know, 3 o'clock. And 16 minutes in, oh, I'm sorry, my watch. It's just, you know, it beeps and reminds me that, that I need to pause and, and show you how righteous I am. I mean, invite you to pray with me. You see how you can sort of organize or manipulate your, even your informal opportunities to pray, uh, much less or just as much as your formal opportunities to pray. You can sort of turn them into ways to shift the focus off of prayer, off of your own private communion with God and onto a, you know, an opportunity to be seen, to be publicly applauded. But that's not what Jesus calls his followers to, those who are wholeheartedly oriented toward God. As we've said already, God wants our private devotion, not our public displays. That's why Jesus uses the word hypocrites to describe the people who make it a point to pray publicly in order to be seen by other people, in order to be thought well of by other people, you know, in order to be seen as righteous. You'll remember the word hypocrites as Jesus is using it here and in chapter 6. It doesn't mean somebody who says one thing but then does another thing when they're in private. A hypocrite, the way Jesus is using the word, is someone who does all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Somebody who, as he warns in verse 1, practices their righteousness which is what we're called to do, live out right living before God, who practices their righteousness but does it in front of other people in order to be seen by other people, to be praised. The hypocrite is the person who is practicing their righteousness in order to look good, not in order to actually be good. So the hypocrite, according to Jesus, is, is that person who prays often and eloquently in public but rarely at all in private. He would call that person a hypocrite. The hypocrite is the person who spends more time setting up a beautiful picture of their, their Bible and notebook and journal and pen and coffee and, and takes a picture of it to post online. He spends more time arranging it than actually praying or reading or journaling. The hypocrite is the one who's the self-promoter, you know, the person who talks often about their spiritual rhythms and their habits of daily worship and their time of connection with God and talks about it more than actually practices it. The hypocrite is the person who sets themselves up as an example of what to do when in private rarely do what they're encouraging other people to do. 
Hypocrite's not the person who says one thing and does something else. It's the person who does all the right things for all of the wrong reasons. Because, according to Jesus, there, there's no true righteousness. There's no true wholehearted orientation towards God, who He is, what He desires, what He'll do when He returns. There's no true righteousness when we do righteous things for unrighteous reasons. There's no true righteousness when our, our heart motivations aren't wholly oriented toward what pleases God, but are instead drawn over towards what pleases other people or will make other people pleased with us. So he warns us, just like he does when he talks about giving to the poor or when he talks about fasting, he says, truly, I say to you, and this is a bit tongue-in-cheek, ironic, the people who do this have received their reward. They've gotten all the reward they're going to get. See, the, the hypocritical praying person in, in view here has already received the only, the only reward that he or she is going to get, which is the shallow praise of others. That's all you're going to end up with if this is the type of righteousness that you're displaying. And in comparison to what God says, what Jesus says, God has waiting for those who are wholly oriented towards Him, those who are truly righteous, the reward of pleasing others, this is the ironic point, this is no reward at all. It's worth nothing. It's fool's gold compared to the real thing. And so Jesus gives us, you know, a remedy some practices that we can put into place in order to suss out within ourselves, sort of to diagnose within ourselves, am I susceptible to this motivation of wanting to display my righteousness, display my piety in order to be seen, or am I more oriented towards God and simply being with Him in, in prayer? Jesus gives a remedy, a solution. Look at verse 6. <clears throat> So, verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Verse 6, when you pray, here's what you should do. Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Just like in the previous section on giving to the poor, just like in the section to follow on fasting, Jesus tells his followers that the best way to find out if you're acting out of right motivation, out of a desire to please God, it, instead of a desire to you know, parade your piety in public, says, look, if you want to find out what your motivations really are, then for a period of time, keep doing what you were doing, but do it in secret. Do it where no one sees. So, when you pray, again, not if, Jesus assumes that we're all going to pray, that we're all actively practicing prayer. He says, when you pray, go into uh, your room, this is a word for the inner room of the house, probably the storeroom. Uh, it might be the only room in the house with a lock on it, uh, but no windows. It's a private place. So he says, go somewhere private, somewhere you know, where no one can see you. It, no one's going to you know, accidentally stumble in on you or interrupt you. He says, shut the door there and, and pray in that private, that secret place. He says, there pray to God who is your Father. And God is there in that secret place. Verse 6, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
there's this great parallelism going on with the word secret in all three of these examples. When you practice your devotion to God in secret, you're not just talking to the ceiling or, or giving without anyone noticing or recognizing. You're not fasting for no good purpose. Jesus says God himself is in that secret. He's in the secret giving. He's in the secret fasting. He's in the secret praying. When you are alone and in private and in secret, you're not alone because God is in that secret private place with you. Which is good news because, I mean, you know this as well as I do, we all want someone to notice when we're doing the right things, right? When you do something good, when you do something laudable, something that should be praised, you want someone to notice. I mean, whether it's a child saying, you know, watch me, watch me, daddy, or it's you signing your name to the bottom of a, a report that you turned in at your job, or it's, uh, you know, it's you pointing out to someone you love how you did something nice for them. We're all wired to, all of us are wired to be recognized when we do the right thing. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. The fact that we do right things, that we do righteous acts, those things should be seen and recognized because righteous acts, good things are beautiful things, and beauty demands to be perceived, to be celebrated, to be enjoyed. The goodness of a righteous act is just as laudable, just as beautiful as a, a flute choir, as a vocalist, as an instrumentalist who, who plays beauty into our lives. It's just through a different instrument. Good things are beautiful and cry out to be seen. But it comes with a deep temptation and a deep danger. St. Augustine, in writing on this passage, says that when people see you doing something good, like praying, when people see you doing something good and they don't praise you for it, they are in error. But if people see you doing something good and they do praise you for it, you are in danger. It's a bit of a catch-22, isn't it? Because when we do the things, the righteous things that God calls us to, and they're seen, perceived, and praised, well, then we're in danger of subtly beginning to shift our heart's motivation away from praying, in this case, praying for the sake of knowing God, to praying for the sake of being known as someone who knows God. There's a world of difference between the two. So Jesus isn't here saying in these verses any more than he did when he was talking about giving to the poor or any more than he will when he talks about fasting. He's, saying, he's not saying do everything in secret so that no one sees. He's saying, look, if you, if you struggle with knowing if your motivations are right, like, am I doing this for, for God or am I doing this to be seen by other people? If you're struggling with knowing if your motivations are right, then limit yourself. Limit your practice of devotion to God, whether it's prayer or fasting or giving. Limit it to only in private. And when you yearn to be noticed, 
as we all do, remember God is in that secret place. God sees your prayer in private. You are noticed, and you're noticed by the only one whose notice actually really matters. Because in that moment, you're doing what God wants. He wants our private devotion, not our public displays. So we have to be careful not to take these verses too overly literally. Or if you take what Jesus is saying just in these two verses and, and we take it as binding on all prayer at all times, then we wouldn't, have any, we wouldn't have any corporate prayer unless you do that voice distortion face fuzz thing that they do on 60 Minutes. There wouldn't be anyone praying in church. There wouldn't be any small group prayer meetings. We, would only, we wouldn't even be able to sing together because half of our songs are prayers, probably more than half. We'd only ever privately be alone, this, that, which is obviously ridiculous. It's not what Jesus is getting at. The point here in admonishing us to, to privately practice our devotion, our prayer, our giving, our fasting, the point is not to you know, put binding rules on our prayer or the appropriate setting for prayer. The point isn't the setting. The point is the motivation. He's contrasting public prayer versus private prayer in terms of the motives of our hearts. It's not the being seen by others that's wrong. It's the doing of these things in order to be seen by others that's wrong. It may be obvious, but people rarely pray in, pri- in private because they want other people to notice them. Right? So you're doing it in private. But it's all too easy to pray in public primarily to be seen, to be thought well of. And when you start going down that road, eventually you end up praying only in public. That's the only time, that's the only place in which prayer actually seems like it has a point. Because all it's about is being seen. But like we said, God wants our, wants our private devotion, not our public displays of religiosity or surface-level righteousness. Now, in each of these three examples, Jesus doesn't end with saying, hey, don't do it like that, do it like this. He goes on to uh, give a a hope-filled promise designed to motivate. He says, look, there's a reason you're investing in the hard work of learning to pray, uh, of examining yourself and repenting and turning and turning back again uh, to the, the kind of righteousness that, that Jesus is calling us to, that God requires. Look at the end of verse 6. So your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You then that word reward almost carries with it this idea. Well, it's used in other contexts of an idea of like he'll pay you what you're owed for it, you'll get your paycheck, you will be appropriately compensated for the difficult work that you're doing in, in learning to grow in whole person righteousness. Now, this whole idea of reward <clears throat> uh, kind of sits funny for us. Um, 
most of us have been told you do the right thing because it's the right thing, not because you're going, <clears throat> excuse me, not because you're going to get something out of it. You know, being rewarded feels like, I don't know, it feels weird like giving a child candy for obeying, you know, or, or making your employees put an extra effort by paying them on commission or something like, well, if you work hard, you'll get rewarded, right? But the idea of, of reward, it's a consistent theme running throughout the whole sermon. Right? From the very beginning, when Jesus laid down these sort of aphorisms about what real flourishing human life looks like, he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Be, rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is very great. You'll have a great reward. And all the way through this section of chapter 6, ten times Jesus promises reward or treasure or warns against losing a reward. Throughout this, this whole section, Jesus' invitation to the kind of righteousness that goes deeper than just outward behavior, it's based on an appeal to gaining reward from God. Not just the kind of reward uh, that comes from others, the reward that won't last, but a reward from God that, that will last, that will endure forever. As he gets to the end of this section, verses 19, 20, uh, 21, he says, what kind of treasure, what kind of reward do you want? The kind here where moth and rust destroy and thieves can break in and steal it, or the kind of reward that's with your Father in heaven that, will, that is incorruptible? In fact, Verse 1 that sets up this whole thing uh, makes this abundantly clear. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward. Now, in our translation here, the ESV, the one we're reading from, it says you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. A better translation is probably with your Father. You'll have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now, it's true that the reward comes from God, our Father, every good gift comes from our gracious God. But the point of what Jesus is saying here is that there is a reward at the end that is right now with the Father. And when he returns and brings heaven back to earth, he is bringing with him a reward, a recompense for those who have done this hard work of wisely growing in whole, whole person righteousness. In, in living out, working out this wholehearted orientation towards God. Now, we are saved. We come to God initially through grace and through grace alone. And it is grace that continues to fuel us as we move and grow in this righteousness. But it's a responsible participation on our part. We don't just sit back and do nothing and say, okay, God, change me. He says, if you want to be changed, I'll fuel it, but, you know, you got to stoke this fire a little bit. And when he returns, those who have been working at this, who have been growing, wisely growing in whole person righteousness, those who have said, I want my life now to begin aligning with who God is, what God wants, what God will do when he returns... Jesus promises there's reward. Now, what's the reward? I know you're all asking, is it like extra points? You get to level up? 
bigger mansion? What's the reward? I don't think it's any of those things. Because all of those things, like giving candy to a child to obey you, all of those things are sort of uh, external to the actual activity. Right? The, as Pastor Jeff talked about two weeks ago, the natural reward is one that is intrinsically tied to the activity itself. So if you're an athlete and you put in hours and hours and hours of practice, or, or you're, you're working on increasing your, uh, your chess game, or you're like my daughter trying to solve a Rubik's Cube in the car on the way here, putting in all of that practice, all of that work, you don't do it for you know, a paycheck, you do it to get better at the thing that you're practicing at, whether it's chess or your sports or a Rubik's Cube. The reward is intrinsic. It's baked into the activity itself. So what's the reward for growing in private devotion, private prayer, communion with God? The reward is coming closer and closer to the very face of God. And growing in being, in experiencing God now in anticipation of that day in the future when we will experience God entirely, completely. There is an ex- a face-to-face experience of God that is coming when God returns when he brings heaven back to earth, and once again, we dwell with him. We are his people, and he is our God. The reward is that even now, we can begin to experience the face of God and the smile of God on us. And we see the smile. We see the face of God smiling on us uh, in and through Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf on the cross, when he gave himself for us in our place. We see the smile of God through the face of Jesus, and we experience the smile of God as we continually bring ourselves back to wholehearted, whole person, external and internal, heart-deep righteousness. Because what does God want? What does God smile on? He smiles on our private devotion, not our public displays. Public display is easier, but private devotion is always better. Uh, let me wrap this up with uh, you know, just a few quick thoughts for how we might live this out uh, this week. I mean, the first, probably the obvious, is, is that we could put right into practice what Jesus says. If you only ever pray in public or you only ever pray when other people are with you, with your family or with a friend, with a spouse, um, maybe you should stop. Stop praying. And start praying in private at least for a little while, and ask yourself, what does, what does no longer praying in such a way that you're being seen, what is that doing to you internally? Second, when you do pray in public, you lead your family, uh, you're in a prayer meeting, you're on stage, One way to challenge ourselves to sort of pull our egos out of our display is to not use our own words when we pray. 
to use someone else's words. You know, someone else's prayer or prayer from the past that's uh, been written out for us. I know praying other people's prayers feels awkward, like, but that's not me. It's not authentic. It's not, you know, it's not who I am if I pray someone else's words. But that's kind of the point. When you pray other people's words, you pull your own ego out of it. You, you take out the chance that you're praying so eloquently in order for other people to be impressed with how you're praying. So it's a good practice to pray other people's prayers, unless, of course, you introduce your praying by saying, like, hey, guys, I, you know, I found this prayer when I was digging in these old ancient manuscripts uh, of, like, Celtic spirituality, and I'm sorry it's clunky. I translated it from the Gaelic myself, you know. <laughs> that goes a little bit against what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so if you are, you know, if you're someone and you're like, I'm actually not sure if I'm motivated to pray if I'm not being watched or seen by someone else around me, well, then these are a couple of good ways to kind of work on your heart. Jesus says, pray in private. Pray someone else's words. See what that does to your desire to be noticed. Because ultimately, I think what Jesus is saying here boils down to really one core motivation. If you, if you don't believe or you can't believe that your Father in heaven sees you in your private devotion and smiles on you, then you have to go looking for that smile somewhere else. It's just baked into who we are. We're motivated by uh, people recognizing the good that we do. That's, that's part of how God made us. So if it's not enough for you, if it's not enough for me that our, our Father who sees our private prayer, who sees it in secret, if it's not enough to have His smile, then we will endlessly, relentlessly be driven to look for that smile somewhere else. And all of the good things that God calls us to do will become the very things that separate us, that stand between us and God. I think it's significant that Jesus doesn't just give us, you know, six examples of sins to avoid, but three examples of good things to do rightly. As one theologian has put it, it's not so much your sins that stand between you and God, but your damnable good works. All of the good things that you do for the wrong reasons. So when we start going down this road of God's smile is not enough, I need other people's smiles in order to feel like, like, I'm, like I'm loved, like I'm respected, like I'm worth something, or in order to check mark, prove, qualify my righteousness. And before long, all of our private devotion is replaced by public displays. As we're reduced to simply seeking, desperately seeking the smiling gaze of, of others. But as Jesus goes on to warn us in the sort of summary statement for this whole section in verses 19, 20, 21, don't trade the, the smile of your father, which lasts forever, for the smiles of others. Those fade and are quickly gone. God smiles on our private 
devotion. Our simple, humble desire to come before him and be with him. That smile is worth a whole lot more than y'all's smiles when we get up here and pray. So let's pray. Father, may your smile be enough for me and for each of us. I pray in the name of your Son.